God, you are worthy of all the praise we can give. We could spend many more hours praising you this morning just for the resurrection and the death of Jesus Christ and many, many other things, many other ways you are good, many other ways that you are a perfect God who is worthy of all things. We praise you for the finished work of Christ that we have already meditated on, we've already spoken about, we've already sung about this morning. God, we pray that you would use your word to continue to open our eyes and open our hearts to the depth and the breadth of this good news. pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. On a Saturday in Nazareth, a Sabbath day, many, many years ago, and a few years before his death and his resurrection, we find Jesus standing in a synagogue. And he speaks these words. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it tells us he rolled up the scroll that he had been reading from and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. These words that Jesus read are quoted from Isaiah chapter 61 and also a portion of chapter 42. Most of you have been with us as we looked at the different chapters of Isaiah over the past several weeks, Uh, but if not, or even if you were, let me just give you a thumbnail sketch refresher. 700 years before Jesus read, read these words in that synagogue, Isaiah served as a prophet to his people, the people of Israel. And he spoke to them of who God was, how much God loved his people, Israel, and what he was going to do to fix the problem that they had created with their sin, what he was going to do to rescue them, to save them, and not just his people, Israel, but all of his people. And Isaiah, using God's words, describes that God will send someone to save them, a person, And he communicates ultimately that it will be he, God himself, who will come to be the Savior. And he uses three different characters, three different portraits. We looked at the king that would come. We looked at the suffering servant, specifically just this past Friday, and our Good Friday servant. And he also uses the character, the portrait of the anointed one, the anointed one who would bring renewal. We just sang the song, Is all creation groaning? It is. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We sang, we do. The anointed one would bring renewal. Isaiah, speaking on behalf of this anointed one, lists what that renewal would look look like. On Isaiah's list, he said, bring good news to the poor, Bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, 
and he would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When Jesus quoted these words 700 years later in the synagogue, synagogue in his hometown, it's not exactly the same as Isaiah chapter 61. That's because what Luke records, uh, he records the phrases Jesus said, the phrases he omitted, the extra phrase from Isaiah 52. It's not a misquote, it's not an error in translation or copying later on. He's recording the fact that Jesus actually preached a sermon. It was his tradition, it said, to go to the synagogue. And as a visiting rabbi, he was given the honor of preaching. He was handed the scroll. That morning it was Isaiah, the the book of Isaiah. He was handed the scroll. We know from historical Judaism that they had a schedule, the synagogues had a schedule for what part of the law they read on what date, and it's probable that they had the same thing for the prophets. It could have been, that was what was supposed to be read that morning, chapter 61. Or it could have been he was just given the scroll Isaiah and he turned to it. But he obviously didn't just read chapter 61. Like most preachers you hear today, like I'm doing this morning, Jesus cross-referenced. He used other texts that were important to understand the message. So Jesus' list is a little bit different if you look at it. Jesus' list says, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. That's the added phrase. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year Of the Lord's favor. And then verse 21 says, He began to say, as he was sitting down, the the preacher in the synagogue would sit down as he preached. He began to say, He didn't just read, but he also expounded, he explained. And at the conclusion of explaining these things, he said these words Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is telling them, I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah. I'm the one who will bring renewal. Jesus is not saying that everything is being fulfilled right then and there. There's there's nothing else to fulfill later on. He's not saying that. Uh, And actually, in the phrases he does quote, he, he leaves some phrases out. He doesn't quote the part about the day of vengeance that will come. That's still yet to come. He's not saying that's happening right now, but he is saying, this is me. I am he who stands before you. Every other rabbi that had gotten up in a synagogue and preached, who had read from Isaiah or any other passage that spoke of the anointed one or the Messiah coming, would have had to have said, someday, someday he's coming. But Jesus sat down and said, I am here. He said, I'm the anointed one. The word Messiah means anointed one. It's interchangeable. And throughout Israel's history, there were kings and prophets and priests that were anointed. They were identified by anointing their head with oil. Aaron, Elisha, King David was anointed And that was to show that they were chosen for the task. They were the guy to do the job. But Jesus, this is Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, the chosen one. He's chosen to be the prophet, the priest, the king. He is the Messiah, the anointed one par excellence. 
That's what we should mean. That's what we should think when we say Jesus Christ. Christ is the Greek word for chosen one, Messiah. Jesus was his first name, but Christ was his title. And Jesus announces here that that's who he is. And and a lot of people that day got that. We know that they understood that because they got angry. They got angry because he was claiming to be the Messiah. They tried to kill him that day. But others, as they watched him over the years that he walked on earth, they're waiting and seeing if he would do what he claimed to do, that he claimed he came to do. In his earthly ministry, roughly starting at this time for the next three years until his death and resurrection, Jesus did come to fulfill these prophecies. He demonstrated that he was the Messiah by actually doing these things by proclaiming good news to the poor, by recovering sight to the eyes of, blind, of the blind. He didn't do this just so he could check the box. These weren't just arbitrary prophecies so that he could come and prove that he was the, the one that was prophesied, like a random arbitrary prophecy, he'll climb Mount Kilimanjaro and pluck a flower. No, these served a purpose. He, he checked the box, I fulfilled them, but they also were signs that pointed to what he came to do. And some people were watching and understanding. But some just wanted more miracles. Some just wanted more care for the poor. Some just wanted more miraculous food. More healing of illnesses. Casting out demons. Raising people from the dead. And when Jesus came to the end of his ministry, these people that were watching, they could have pointed out a few things. There are blind people that see now, but not everyone There were still blind people after Jesus died and rose again and went back to heaven. As far as we know, Jesus didn't break anyone out of prison. And in fact, John the Baptist, the one who was called to proclaim the entrance of the Lamb of God, the Messiah, he died in prison. Jesus didn't bring him liberty. Did this Jesus really do what he claimed he was going to do? But see, Jesus wasn't promising just to bring physical renewal, physical sight, physical freedom. This echoes the message we had from last week. The exodus, the deliverance that the suffering servant was going to bring was not just political, it was spiritual. The renewal that the anointed one will bring is spiritual, not just physical. And it is spiritual, not because the physical is unimportant, but because the spiritual plane is where this renewal needs to start. In the prophecy of Isaiah, and what Jesus announced in the synagogue in Nazareth, there were physical promises listed. But these were only the shadow of spiritual realities. So when Jesus said these things, what he said he meant ultimately in terms of sin. He's talking about blindness and captivity, speaking in terms of sin. There are differences in these lists that you might have noticed as I put them up there. But let me draw your attention to the the main common points that they make. Jesus promised when he was speaking in the synagogue and speaking as the anointed one in Isaiah, promised that he would bring good news to the poor. And in his earthly ministry, 
He brought news to the poor, the economically poor of his day, but also to the economically rich. Remember Zacchaeus? He brought good news to those who were spiritually poor, poor in spirit, as it says in the Sermon on the Mount. Those who knew that they were sinners. They knew that they needed a Savior. They had nothing to offer on their own to commend them to God. The word used here for poor uh, is not someone who is a working poor, someone who's poor but is working off a debt or something. There's another word for that. This word is the destitute poor. The poor, the beggar, the one whose only hope to not be poor lies outside of himself. He cannot make himself not poor. He needs someone else, someone else's generosity, someone else's gift. Sin makes us beggars. It makes us unable to work our way out of our poverty. Jesus came to bring good news to us beggars. Jesus promised to bring sight to the blind. This is in Luke, not originally Isaiah 61, but the word in Isaiah 61 for the opening of the prison, it's a word directly related to opening eyes. And that's probably where Jesus connected the thought with the phrase in Isaiah 42, 7, where it reads, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out of the prison, from the, out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. A direct correlation between the, the imprisonment and the spiritually blind. Sin brings spiritual blindness, spiritual darkness. Isaiah, I'm sorry, excuse me, Psalm 82 describes this. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. Jesus came to open the eyes, not just of the blind, but of the hearts of sinners, that they would see who they were and see that they needed a savior. Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captives. There are these two slightly different phrases used, both passages here, and they speak of different aspects of liberty. Uh, in, in Luke 4, describes liberty to the captives and also liberty for those who are oppressed. Speaks of actual captivity, enslavement, imprisonment, but also speaks of oppression, those who are overwhelmed by something, overwhelmed by life, which is an allusion to the phrase that was left out from Isaiah 61, the anointed one came to bind up the brokenhearted. So Jesus came to give good news to the poor, to give sight to the blind, and now he says, give liberty to the imprisoned and also those who are overwhelmed or oppressed. And these last two, the cat liberty, speak in terms of sin as well. Romans speaks of sin in terms of enslavement. Sin is a slave master. We human beings are slaves to sin. We are owned, we are controlled. The sad thing is, though, those who are enslaved to sin, I think they're free. Our world is in a frenzy of showing off how much freedom we can have by throwing off moral bounds. But that enslaves. Sin enslaves, and it blinds. It blinds you to your enslavement. When you're in the dungeon of sin, it's dark. You don't see and Jesus speaks also in sin, of sin in terms of oppression. 
of the overwhelming weariness that sin brings. Jesus spoke in Matthew 11, come to me, all you, who, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And he said, I will give you rest. The way of the sinner is hard, but Jesus came to free those enslaved by sin. Jesus came to lift the burdens of the oppressed. The anointed one promises renewal of all these things. And not just in a temporary earthly sense, but a complete spiritual sense. But sin brings more than just these things. You know this verse, probably, most of you. The wages of sin is death. Romans 5, 12 tells us, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We think about death at Easter. Think about Jesus' death on the cross and that Jesus rose from the dead. And we should. But see, death is not the main problem that Easter aims to fix. It's not even one of the things listed in Jesus' messianic ministries here, at least not in this list. You can figuratively understand that death is a kind of bondage, a kind of slavery. It's true. 1 Corinthians speaks of death as an enemy. It's the last enemy to be defeated. It's an enemy, but it's not the enemy. Sin is the enemy. Sin is the cause. Death is just the effect, the byproduct. Sin came into the world and, and death through sin. Scripture often talks about the disease of leprosy. This is very common in the ancient world. They didn't understand. They had no cure for it. This was very common. It was a disease that had this horrendous symptom of flesh dying. Death. The symptom was flesh dying. But the death of the flesh was just the symptom. It was not the cause. The real cause was an internal nervous disorder. And scripture, scripture often pictures leprosy as sin. Sin is the problem, and death is that, that byproduct, that symptom, the effect. And all the other ills of human experience are the symptoms. We're enslaved to sin. We're imprisoned by sin. But if you want to think of us being imprisoned by death too, then think of sin as the jailer. Death is the dungeon. But sin is the reason we're there. Sin is the one who captured us, enslaved us, and put us in shackles. Sin is our slave master, our jailer. And though death wasn't called out in Jesus' list of ministries here that he was aiming for, it's clearly a target. It's not the target, but it's a target. It's included in there. It's part of the collateral damage of what Jesus came to do. And that's why death was a part of the plan for Jesus. We looked at the suffering servant Friday in Isaiah 53. The anointed one was also that same suffering servant who would suffer and die for sin, death and sin. And he told his disciples just before he died, he said, this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out through death for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Death, but his main target was the forgiveness of sins. 
His goal was the forgiveness of sins. He was aiming to fix that core problem, to go after the root cause that brought about the horrific symptoms. And there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, without an innocent, spotless lamb dying in place of the sinner. So Jesus entered that dungeon, entered death itself. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He embraced it. He clothed himself in death. And he climbed upon the tree. On the cross, Jesus claimed that it is finished. And then he died. And then he was buried. 1 Corinthians 15 summarizes this. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried. He died and was buried. He was in the dungeon of death. He said it was finished, but how are we supposed to know that it worked? How do we know that he toppled the jailer and defeated death? We can't see this jailer's sin. We can't see death, and Jesus definitely died. How do we know that his blood actually was able to be shed for the forgiveness of others? If he defeated sin, the cause, then its side effect, death, would be defeated too, right? Could the Savior defeat sin but still be defeated by death? And people wondered that for days. Could his death actually have done anything for sin? If death had the last say, the last word, was his death any more able to forgive sins than the other two who were crucified that day just because he said so? Skeptics watched and waited, just like you might watch a magician. A magician tells you what he's going to do, and then he tells you he did it, that he found your card in the deck, but you don't believe him until he shows you. 1 Corinthians 15, as we read a moment ago, goes on to say, if Christ stayed dead, if he stayed in the tomb, if he was not raised, then we have no hope. No hope. If Christ has not been raised, then no one can be. There's no hope in the face of death. And worse, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. You're still in slavery, in captivity. But, as I trust you've already heard this morning, this is no magic trick. In fact, Christ has been raised. That verse from 1 Corinthians 14, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. When his followers visited that tomb that Sunday, they were told by the angels who were waiting just to tell them, he is not here. He is risen as he said. The tomb is empty. He is not in the dungeon. Jesus' resurrection is this dawn of this renewal. The renewal that he planned and claimed that he was coming to bring begins with his resurrection. Because death was defeated. Jesus is the first fruits, the first of those who will be 
resurrection, re- resurrected, excuse me. He tasted death. He entered that dungeon, but it could not hold him. Death in vain forbid him rise. And those who are in Christ, though we may taste death, we will not be held by it. As bad as that enemy is, it is a defeated enemy. And as bad as that enemy is, it's not the main problem. Death was defeated, but sin was defeated. The slave master, the original cause, was killed at the cross and the resurrection. His resurrection was confirmation that his death was able to pay for the sins of the world, that God has accepted his sacrifice. That's why it says he was raised for our justification. And though his followers and skeptics waited and wondered if if that had worked for three days while he was in the grave, they, they should have known his death did pay for sins. It was finished, like he said on the cross. It didn't happen with the empty tomb. Immediately on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn. There was no separation between God and sinners anymore because of the finished work of Christ. Death is defeated. Sin is defeated. Jesus brings freedom over the worst of our enemies. Complete renewal. He is proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. This is what the year of the Lord's favor is all about, where sinners, because Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and we know it's true because he rose again, sinners can have favor with the Lord. You can have favor with the Lord. You can be right with God because Jesus died and rose again. This is the year of the Lord's favor. It's not just a calendar year. This has been going on and being preached and proclaimed for 2,000 years. And this good news has simple implications. If you don't know what this means, if you don't know what it means to not have to fear death, because it cannot hold you. If you don't know what it means, even better, to not have to fear sin. To not have to be enslaved to sin. To not be blinded by sin. To not be poor in spirit. If you don't know what this means, don't just hear about the resurrection of Christ this morning. You can taste it. You can experience the resurrection life of Christ in your life, in your blindness, in the darkness of the dungeon that sin holds you in. If you don't know, taste and see what this resurrection life is. Keep reading. Come talk to someone. If you do know, you have hope. We have hope. Hope in the face of death. We don't mourn as those who have no hope. Death, as bad as it is, will actually be our servant in the end, it will serve us, as the Puritan Richard Sibb said, as a grim porter to let us into a stately palace. And not just death. If you know this, you are in Christ, then you are not in your sins. You are not in your sins. If you have tasted the resurrection life already, it means you've been raised to walk in newness of life. Your life is different now. You can live like victory has been won 
Sin is not in charge anymore. You're not poor in spirit. You have the riches of Christ. You are not blind. You can see. You're not captive. Sin has no power over you for eternity and no power over you for now. We read these verses already. Let me close with Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies right now through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's live like Christ has been risen. Let's pray. God, we praise you once again for the finished work of Christ. We have no fear of death or any other symptoms of sin. God, we praise you that sin is defeated. It is not in charge anymore. We pray that those who do not know this, you would draw them to yourself. And those that do know, you would continue to show the resurrection life. You could help us to continue to live like Christ is risen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.